Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Right? Members will have their own area because they kind of want to hang out. They, they, they've been here. They know the different things. But they kind of want to be by themselves, and they want to share what they know and love about Clodeval with their friends that they brought. So then they have a space for that. Um, There's an outdoor space. There's an indoor space. Um, When the weather's nice, you get to use both. Yeah. Um, It's it's really gearing everything we do toward what our customers want, not what we want. And I think that's the big difference. Yes. Back in the day, it's like, well, I'm going to make this, and they're going to like it. And if they don't like it, too bad. That, that was the attitude in all of Napa Valley. Yeah. We know better than they do. Yeah. But now with technology, with Facebook, with Twitter, with Instagram, you you could gear your ads toward the right people. Yeah. So the person that's like, you know, I'll constantly looking up Napa Valley, our phones listen to us, I swear they do. You look at Napa Valley, and all of a sudden all these Napa ads pop up. Yeah. We're going to Italy in July and all we've been talking about the trains and the hotels and uh, accommodations. All of a sudden, all these ads for Italy are popping up. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, isn't that something? So. Yes, indeed. So take advantage of those yeah. resources. I mean, they really are there. So we can make a sweeping generalization like Napa is expensive. There's so much more to the story. Sure. And arguably, you get what you pay for. You know, a lot of people say, why, why is this wine so expensive? Yeah. And, and it could be a $10 bottle, someone says, is expensive. And mm-hmm. it could be a $500 bottle, someone says, is expensive. It's all relative. So everyone has their own view of, well, I think this is expensive. Um, but whatever the case may be, you have to realize this took a year of growing. Well, mm-hmm. give or take. Yeah. So vines are dormant. Then they go through their bud break. Then they go, they go through a whole cycle. And so first you have to farm that. And then you get the fruit, and then you have to crush the fruit, then you got to put it in the barrels. So this bottle of Merlot takes over two and a half years to make. Mm-hmm. What is that worth? How much time? How many people? How much? How, many, how much is a barrel? How much? Everything that goes into it. So at forty-two dollars a bottle for a bottle of Merlot from Estate Fruit in Napa Valley. What it's did it take? Kind of a bargain. It is. It is. <laughs> and and so it's all relative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I have friends that would never spend more than $10 on a bottle of wine because they don't care. And that's okay. I'm still friends with them. I was going to say, you're still friends you with know, them. I, I am. Um, I, I make sure that when we're drinking, they have their Budweiser or their, you know, yeah. whiskey or their, you know, whatever they want to drink or ice mm-hmm. or whatever. It doesn't matter. And I'm drinking the wine. Yeah. But they also might spend $20,000 on a computer to play video games. And I'm like, are you mad to spend $20,000 on a computer thing to play video games? So it's all relative. Everyone has their own yeah. things they, they spend money on. So with respect to Claude Duval, obviously history. I mean, if you think about post-prohibition, some people would say demarcation Starts with Mandavi, really. I mean, he was the of grand course. ambassador of Napa Valley. He really developed, founded, and developed the concept of hospitality, and sure. a lot of wineries followed. So you were right there, pretty much in the beginning, in the judgment of 
Paris that rearranged people's heads about what Napa is all about, put it in the map to the chagrin yeah. <laughs> of the French. Um, but you can never rest on your laurels in any business, but I think particularly in the wine business. So you had to develop and reinvent yourself in some ways. And um, the fact that it's family owned, I think is very instructive in the variety of ways. Um, tell us about kind of the current state of Cote d'Ivoire. What's notable about it? What's something that people really need to know about Cote d'Ivoire? Well, first of all, we're family owned. Um, mm -hmm. That's that's first and foremost, because the decisions at Cote d'Ivoire are based on on not on a corporation executive level, a, a team made up of a whole bunch of people where it takes six months to make a decision of what color are you going to paint the door, right? It's, it's based on, uh, it's a small group. Um, our, our executive team consists of uh, John Mark Chapelet, who's our president mm -hmm. from the Chapelet family. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. Um, someone asked him, uh, you know, Chapelet family, and, and he was there for 12 years. He was at Chapelet for 12 so years. Why isn't he working for his own family? I'm sure our listeners and viewers are wondering. There are six kids. <laughs> so there's only, I mean, well, you know, so, but um, so much to do. Well, it's funny because I, th I think JM came and saw there's so much opportunity here mm. because one of the things he did that was really instrumental was he shifted our farming practices to organic. How cool. We're going to be CCUF certified this year. And okay. so we've been we've been we've been farming organically for over three years now, trying to get everything in line. Yeah. And um, you know, he's very much a man of this earth. He wants to make sure he gives more to the earth than he takes. Because in order to keep everything going the way we want to, we gotta take care of it. And taking care of it is not saying, Hey, what else are you gonna give me, Earth? You know, what else are you gonna give my vine? Just keep giving. I'll keep pumping you with whatever. Just keep giving. It's like no, it's a give and take. So, um, as our president, he 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 started farming organically, and that's been a big part of it. Ted Henry, our, uh, our director of winemaking, um, he takes such a cool approach. He's young. He's he's in his early forties, mm -hmm. and he has such a cool approach to to winemaking, where he's not stressed out. You never see him upset about anything. He's like, you know, we're we're gonna do what we do, and and he doesn't manipulate things so mm -hmm. he kind of just guides it mm -hmm. along its process um not natural winemaking by any means but um you know shannon uh, maracchioli is our uh, uh director of hospitality and dtc and she's brilliant right and, and she does marketing as well so it's uh, dtc and marketing mm -hmm. and it's brilliant at at, at Great you know team. what she does yeah it's, it's 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 really a dream team um i we have weekly uh, meetings mm -hmm. with our executive team. And usually most people are like, ah, oh, another meeting. I love it. We get together for two hours and I walk away with something more than when I walked in. And everyone's really transparent. And we're all working together. Uh, and, and, and it's interesting because no one's trying to, to, you know, go after someone else's job or mm -hmm. position themselves for mm -hmm. this or that. We're just all doing our job. Mm -hmm. to shepherd the next, you know, 25 years of this place, to, 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 to do our job, to make sure the next generation can come on and they don't have to clean things up or fix things up. They just continue and make it better. Where did that culture comes from? Because it's not, it doesn't just happen by accident. No. And it's funny. Um, it's interesting. I, I, I want to, you know, the, uh, obviously the family. Yes. Uh, Ulov Galette, 
third generation is here on a daily basis. So he, mm -hmm. he has shepherded a lot of this. Um, and, you know, there's a board of directors. There's, there, you know, there, we do have, it's, it's, it's a properly. There's a macro yeah. vision and organization. And, and, and we're all working on, okay, how do we, how do we get to the next step? Mm -hmm. um, but having that family involvement is so important. Big deal. Um, and they don't make rash decisions. I've worked at family wineries. I have friends who work at family wineries. And sometimes they're like, yep, yeah, the owner came in, decided we're not going to make Cabernet anymore, even though that's what we've done for the last 15 years. We're going to start, now start making Syrah. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, what is, how, do, how does that happen? Well, yeah. you know, he, he uh, had a bottle of Syrah, and that's what he wants us to do from now on. Because he had a <laughs> bottle, and it was the greatest thing. So you, you don't have a lot of that. You don't have these knee-jerk reactions here. And um, there's there's a process. We think things through. We talk about things, and um, thoughtful approach. Yes, super important. I mean, I would say crucial. Being thoughtful and deliberate and purposeful, and actually leadership qualities is all about essentially having other people make you look good by making sure you attract the talent and the dedication and not micromanaging it. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that because um, there's anything we do, we talk about, we look at different angles. We look, we look at different scenarios mm -hmm. and you know, we're, we're a newer management team here. We've been around for four years, five years at most. Mm -hmm. um, but we all have the same goal. We have a job to do and we have a story mm -hmm. to tell. No one is here trying to find their next yeah. position or their next promotion or their next whatever. You know, it almost sounds like a bit of a fairy tale. I love how interconnected and dare I say interdependent sure. you are. I think that's like the healthiest environment I can yeah. think of. But I'm fascinated because everybody, everybody has stress in their job, but I think deep down, if we were to do a little soul searching, we're all feeling a little insecure and competitive at times. But what you're describing is really ideal case scenario. We're not competitive. It's the craziest thing. No one sits at that meeting and says, well, you know, I like what you said, but I'm going to come up with something better to say just so I can say I came up with something better. Or, mm -hmm. you know, I don't like that idea. I'm going to come up with an idea. It's going to be the same idea, but I'm going to say it. And everyone's going, we don't have any of that. Because the wine industry is a crazy industry. Very the wine industry is absolutely <laughs> bonkers of an industry. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, this is this is such a great team. And it's funny because one of the things the first time I sat in this in that room and I'm looking around and I'm like, wow, not an idiot in this room. And I was like, oh <laughs> crap, does that mean I'm the idiot now? Because uh, they say if you can't find the stupid person in the room, you look at yourself. Indeed. So I'm looking going, oh, this isn't good. And then I was like, no, we just hit the jackpot. It sounds like a unicorn oh, situation. You know, going through construction, having this place built, having the team all work toward that, the way things worked out, um, you know, is, is pretty amazing. And I think when, when you have great people, great things happen. And do you believe there's a transference on the product? Yes. This intangible that we couldn't really nail down. The feeling. The feeling. Yeah. There we are. Yeah. That feeling comes up again. Um, yeah. It's 
it's really fascinating to me how people think um, of various mediums such as communication and they focus on the words but there's that body language there's this underlying meetings um, the undercurrents running back and forth and that arguably is much more important than what actually comes out Um, and I think the same is true for everything and when people talk about the mystery the magic the art of wine isn't that kind of part of that it is totally part of that you know, it's 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 the art of, right? In life, yeah. it's always the art of. Yeah. It's the art of listening. Yeah. Um, it's the art of making wine. It's the art of making people feel good. Right? And a lot of it is the art. I yes. don't think there's much... There's some science to it, but some of it um, is creative. Mm-hmm. And art is very creative. Yes. There's no science of how... To make people feel good. There's no science of hospitality. It's an art. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think it's funny. We all have books on our desks, right, of what we read and, and mm-hmm. uh, um, what we learn. And there's books on everyone's desk. We're always learning something from someone else. Yeah. So whether, it, whether it's us together or in a room or someone reads something and says, hey, I just read this. And we start sharing things with each other. Um, it's it's kind of cool. It's totally unicorn. Yeah, I mean, arguably, we're not really inventing much in that sense. I think it's been said, thought, felt by somebody else. Yeah. It's a matter of kind of collecting that. It's a collective wisdom sure. that I think is really instructive. And we think because we live in the information age, the information is new. No, sure. it's just transmitted differently. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, cheers to that. Cheers. And I know it's a Cabernet. Tell it us is. more. <laughs> so um, it's funny. This is the wine that um, uh, we knew we had great food sources to make Cabernet, uh, to make an estate Cabernet. And um, this is a wine that we're like, okay, the restaurants are asking for a great Cabernet from Napa Valley that can sit on their wine list under $100, which is a magic number. Um, and it's hard. It's hard for wineries to do that with Cabernet Sauvignon, Napa Valley especially. But we were able to do this uh, Cabernet. It's our state Cabernet. It comes from our vineyard here, Herondel Vineyard in Stagsy District, and our vineyard in Yachtville on State Lane. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's Cab. It's got a little bit of Merlot and Cab Franc to it. But as a Cabernet from Napa Valley, I mean, it's just awesome. Easy drinking. There's definitely kind of a nice fusion of fruit and some vegetative and drier qualities. Um, it's definitely palate-pleasing, like mm-hmm. you described. And it sounds like you reverse-engineered it a bit from the demand to the supply. Is that yeah. an accurate comment? Okay. Well, you know, it's funny. In, in, when you're out there telling a story and hoping people buy your product, you have to listen. Like I mentioned, art of listening. Mm-hmm. You have to listen to what they're saying. And um, you can overcome a lot of obstacles that way. And it was getting to a point where uh, Napa wineries were getting, you know, the prices were moving north, north, north. Mm-hmm. And restaurants were like, look, I'm, I'm happy for you guys and I'm glad you guys are selling it from the winery, but um, we have to do our markup because, you know, people are like, well, why do I pay the markup at restaurants? Well, because this glass costs money. Yep. And they have to hire the right person to polish that glass and make sure it's perfect. And that wine has to be stored in a room at the right temperature. And someone has to come up and open it. And guess what? If the wine is corked or off or whatever, 
They'll replace it on the spot with something else. And, you know, you're paying for the, the room, the tablecloth, the, the, the ambiance, the whole everything. So, yeah, there's a markup that goes along with it. Um, but at the same time, they can't do their markups they do regularly with a bottle of wine that retails for $150 and be able to give an affordable Cabernet to a consumer. A bottle that's $150 in a, in a retail store or a winery sits on a wine list for $300. Yeah, that's pretty much entering prohibitive territory. So, so how many people say, I'm going to go out to dinner tonight and I'm going to have a nice dinner and we're going to celebrate. And then when I get the check, I'm going to cry because I paid $300 for a bottle of wine. Not everyone can do that. There, I mean, there are people who will spend $3,000 a night for wine, $30,000. That's that's fine. But the average person does not want to go pay $300 for a bottle of wine. So what do they do? They drink beer. They have a cocktail or two. Mm-hmm. But um, it's, it's great to be able to have a Napa Valley Cabernet made from estate-grown fruit that sits at that sweet spot. Mm-hmm. So this is the reason we're like, we know we can do this. And... Uh, you know, it's uh, people say, what's your best seller? That's a trick question. I make more of this. I sell it. That's my best seller. Yeah. You know, um, but I've, I've gone to restaurants and ordered this wine. And I've had friends that go, do you really need to order your own wine? I said, no, but you haven't tried it. And for the money, it's better than half the things that you were looking at. Mm-hmm. So then they try and like, oh, my God, it's really good. I'm like, I told you. So it's that value concept that we touched on earlier is that it's not price point exclusively or at all, actually, but with respect to the wine list world, let's just say you're in a restaurant, you're not familiar with the wine list. You really are kind of iffy about your wine knowledge and you're in a group that you're trying to impress or at least please. (laughs) perhaps on a date, you know, close friend, whatever. What is your strategy for navigating a wine list? Ask. <laughs> it's, it's funny. If I was to ask someone, what's your favorite color? I'll ask you, what's your favorite color? Blue. What's your favorite food? Oh, my God, sushi. What's your favorite <laughs> vacation place you've ever been to? Azores. What's your favorite wine? No such See, thing. <laughs> uh, but it's funny because there is no such thing. But a lot of people are like, "Oh, uh, uh, hold on, let me get wine spectator, let me get wine advocate." What, what, what's the right answer? There is no right answer. A wine can have it could be the first hundred and one point wine in the world ever. Well, guess what? You could still not like it. There's nothing that says you have to like it because the wine got this score. And so many people are like, "Well, I don't know what the right answer is." The right answer is you like what you like. Be proud. I mean, look, first wine I ever had was Boone Strawberry Hill. When someone says, what's the first wine you ever had? That's the first wine I had. You know, what was the first wine that you had that you were like, wow, uh, Sebastiani, mm-hmm. Sonoma County, 1996. It wasn't a $500 bottle. It wasn't a rare bottle. But that was the wine where I was like, wow, this is really good. Um, but the first bottle I ever had that I was like, okay, there's something special. Yeah, I can tell you what that bottle was. It was a 1984 Hansel Pinot Noir that had been opened. A little bit was poured out. The cork was put back in and forgotten about for four days. And I opened, I pulled the cork. And this was in 2004. Pull the cork, pour the wine. Holy shit. Amazing. No oxidation, no fruit loss. Huh. 
but you know, we all have that one thing and it all gets there somehow. But I think with wine, you love what you love and it's okay to say, well, I, I love this and that's, a, you know, and be proud. It could be a white Zinfandel. It could be a rosé, which is kind of a white Zinfandel without the sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be, um, you know, uh, it could be whatever. But if you're looking at a list and you're like, I don't know, ask. Because the list didn't pop up on its own, right? Someone curated that list. Someone yeah. said, I'm going to have this Cabernet. I'm going to have this Merlot. I'm going to have this Syrah. I'm going to have this Viognier. I'm going to have this whatever. Mm-hmm. So ask your server. Ask your the, the psalm. Ask whoever is walking around, hey, what's your favorite wine? And if there's no one, ask your neighbor at the table next to her, hey, what are you drinking? <laughs> is that any good? Because mm. what happens? Then they pour you a little taste. Oh, taste it. See if you like it. Oh, that's really good. Nice. Good advice. Yeah. So what's in your cellar these days? What's in my cellar? Uh, it's funny. Um, I have a fairly large cellar. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a collector, uh-huh. but I'm also a consumer. Mm-hmm. So I don't have, I have, I shouldn't say, I have few bottles that um, I won't open for a while. Because I've tasted it, I'm like, that's going to be good in 15 years. Mm-hmm. But, um, of course, I have a lot of Napa. Anyone who lives here has a lot of Napa. So I have, you know, uh, I have a fair share of Napa. Of course, Cote d'Ivoire, but I have uh, Matthiasen. I have uh, Phelps. I have uh, Chapelet. I have Frog's Leap. I have um, Pilcrow. I have um, stuff from Oregon. Mm. Um, but... Anyone who knows me knows uh, I love my champagne, my Riesling, and mm-hmm. my Burgundy. You started this conversation with yeah. a brief, fleeting mention of Burgundy, so it got my attention. Any favorite producers? Uh, there's a producer that we visited this summer. Once again, it comes to feeling, of right? Course. So um, Thierry villard Kilemard. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's imported by a small little importer, True North Wine Merchant. Mm-hmm. And it's small production out of Pomard. And they do a Rougienne. They do uh, like they they have they have a bottling of their Pomard called uh, Embrescule, mm-hmm. and they have um, uh, Grand Cru bottling of Corton Charlemagne. They have um, uh, uh, Clo Clo Saint Derrière. They they have these fun little bottlings, mm-hmm. um, but the the wines are spectacular. And we met Thierry himself, mm. and uh, I just got engaged. I got Congratulations. engaged. Thank you. I got engaged in May in Armenia, and we ended up after a six-day trip to Armenia. We go to Champagne for one night, two mm-hmm. days, and then we end up meeting some friends in Burgundy, mm-hmm. and we go visit uh, Thierry, and we start tasting wines, and he's this amazing, beautiful French man with a little mustache, <laughs> with a handlebar, and doesn't speak English. He knows English, but he's like, "Screw it, you're in my world. We're speaking French." <laughs> I love that. Totally fine, right? Um, and he's passionate. We're tasting underground, dirt floor uh, in the cellar. There are bottles. There's two dogs there lying oh, down on the dirt. They don't care. Um, and we start talking, and, and somehow the conversation was like, oh, we just got engaged. He goes, I'll be right back. Uh-uh. He goes upstairs, and he brings a bottle and does not have a label on it, and it's covered in dust and cobwebs. Oh, and he says... Don't tell my wife. She's the boss. Mm. But he goes, this, it's for the lovers. And he opens up this wine and he looks around at us and he goes, it's older than all of you. 
And one of our friends goes, well, how do you know? He goes, because it was made by my father and grandfather. Now, mind you, Thierry retired a year ago. His son has taken over. He hit, opened, he pulled out a bottle of wine that his father and grandfather made, not even him. And he retired because of his age. Because in France, they're like, okay, once you hit this age, retirement. Yeah. yeah. So he opens it up. And it's a uh, Rougien Pomard from the 50s. It's like 58. Extraordinary. And that bottle became the wine of the trip. And we had some great wines. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's that's my favorite producer right now. I, I, I'm picking up as much of the stuff as I can because um, it just drinks so well. Fascinating. So, yeah. So let's toast your engagement. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, ooh. So, yeah. Ooh. So this is different. We went from our estate Cabernet, that is from a couple different vineyards, our single, uh, Stag's Leap District mm -hmm. and Herondale and uh, uh, Yonville Vineyard, so mm -hmm. State Lane and Herondale, mm -hmm. Cab Sauv, a little bit of Merlot and Cab Franc, to 100% Cabernet, 100% Stag's Leap District, Herondale Vineyard, and... Um, once again, sense of place. Oh my God, the if texture. If that does not say Stagsley District. No. It's screaming. SLD and, oh my God. It's and it's 100% Cabernet. Yeah, I have to say that's a wild wine. Yeah. Vintage? 2016. I love opening up this wine for, yes. for friends, especially the uh, friends that are like, yeah, Napa doesn't make anything good. It's all you know, over-extracted, over-manipulated, sweet. I'm like, try this. It's powerful, but it's not over-extracted. Well, that's what's interesting about Stag's Leap, right? They always say it's iron fist and a velvet, and a velvet glove. glove. Yeah. And it's funny because you really get that in this. You really do. Yeah. This is a great blind wine again because yeah. it's so poignant that I, I would totally nail it. Well, and it's funny because when you when you just have blind tasting, it's interesting. It's a hundred percent. It's hard to blind taste someone on a wine that has you know fifteen percent of two other varietals. Mm -hmm. Because if you pick up Cabernet Franc and you pick up Merlot, then you're confused. Hundred percent Cabernet, hundred percent Stag's Leap District, California Napa Valley. I mean, this is it. All narrows down. So if someone tastes this and they're like, "Oh, I get Bordeaux." Why? What part of this said Bordeaux? <laughs> yeah, that's you know. So sorry. it's 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 a it's a fun wine. Uh, once again, it's it's a, a a great expression of the place, Stagsic District. It's almost distracting. I mean, the blue and the black fruit is yeah. like overwhelming. So this is a wine that you know it's pretty today, but. I, I love older wines. It's, it's, it's all relative. People are like, oh, well, how long do you age your wine? I don't know what the answer is. I know that I love older wines. I have friends who don't like wines that are old. So the answer for them is open it when it's young. Um, but I like wines with the complexity of, that age gives it. Um, not every wine ages well, but when they do, it can be pretty, pretty I would special. seriously not have the patience. Yeah. I am such an instant gratification junkie. Nice thing is you pick up six bottles. You have <laughs> one every year on your birthday or some, some anniversary of something. At least it'll last you six years. This is very special. So yeah. 2016 is your current vintage. This is our current vintage here in the tasting room. Our case production? Uh, 1,100 cases. So not a lot. No. At all. 
No. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the whole story. The Chardonnay is 3,000, 4,000 cases. The Pinot Noir is 2,000. Merlot is 2,000. The Cabernet is the largest at 10,000 cases, mm. which is still less than, you know. But that's your goodwill ambassador. Like it's distributed yeah. a bit so that people have an idea what your wine sure. tastes like. Yes, this is amazing. Um, you mentioned Armenia. We have to talk about we Armenia. We have to talk about Armenia. Yes. Um, you know, how do you know when you met an Armenian? They'll tell you. <laughs> I thought you might say that. Armenians, to, Armenians so. are proud, proud people. Yeah. Because we're survivors. Indeed. We've survived time. We've survived genocide. We've survived persecution mm -hmm. for thousands of years. And we're still here. It's fascinating to me because so little is known about the plight of Armenian sure. people. Often when you think about persecution and forced nomadic lifestyle, you think about people from Israel, you know. So um, unfortunately, the people that's been long-suffering. Sure. But Armenians are not necessarily known as such. And that's so true. Um, I mean, obviously, some celebrities like Kardashians have popularized the notion sure. a little bit. Just the awareness, I should say, is not popularizing. It's just creating the awareness. But see, before the Kardashians, who did we have? Cher. That's right. Uh, Jack Kevorkian, Dr. Death. Oh, that's right. right? That's right. You might, you might love him or hate him, but yeah, I didn't hey, if it's your that. time to go and you're suffering, yeah. you might say, put me out of my misery in a yeah. dignified way. Um, uh, Kirk uh, Kevorkian. Kirk Kevorkian. Yeah, MGM. Mm -hmm. In Las oh, Vegas. that's right. That's right. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. Armin Katayan on ESPN. And the oh, only man. reason I know that is because we have a, a sales associate in the country who's, who's just this gem of a human being, and he gives everyone nicknames. And, uh, you know, there's a girl named Susie. He called her Susie Q. Um, uh, with me, it was Armin Katayan. I was like, Big John, how do you get Armin Katayan? He goes, it's the only other Armin I know. And he's from Louisiana, so you know it's 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 you get these nicknames of Armin Katayan, mm. ESPN. I'm like, okay. ATM, the ATM machine was invented by an Armenian. Seriously? Yeah. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.